Welcome to Call and Character. My name is Davey Henriksen, and I teach at Valparaiso University and serve as director of the Institute for Leadership and Service, the sponsor of this podcast. I'm excited to share our second episode with the ethicist Gilbert Mylander. We'll be diving into a conversation about friendship and the challenges of sustaining these intimate relationships in the modern day, especially during a global pandemic that seems designed to send us all into isolation. Over the coming months, we have more than a dozen guests lined up for conversations here on the podcast. Topics will range all over the map. We'll talk about vocation, poetry, American exceptionalism, Marilyn Robinson's new novel, and what it means to read the Bible while black, and of course today, friendship. Don't miss out. Please subscribe to hear future episodes, and feel free to join in the conversation by emailing us your feedback at lead.serve at valpo.edu. Now to the conversation. Welcome to Call and Character, not so casual conversation about calling, culture, and other things that make for lives worth living. In his classic book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis claimed that friendship is unnecessary. He says, like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create, friendship has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things which give value to survival. In other words, we could say friendship is a good that has no price tag. It is something to be enjoyed for its own sake. And as Lewis himself points out, discussions of friendship are as ubiquitous in ancient and medieval texts as they are often neglected in modern philosophy. Ancient wisdom promises us the beauty and delight of union with a beloved friend. Modern critiques often highlight the ways that human frailty, alienation, and distractibility often yield only the faintest shadow of true friendship. Our guest today, Gilbert Mylander, has written beautifully on the nature and ends of friendship, specifically in his classic book, Friendship, A Study in Theological Ethics. He is a leading Christian ethicist with more than a dozen books to his name. He's currently Senior Research Professor at Valparaiso University. Before coming to Valparaiso in 1996, he taught at the University of Virginia and Oberlin College. From 2002 to 2009, he was a member on the President's Council on Bioethics. He's also, I've come to discover, one of the rare academics who habitually chooses Diet Coke over coffee. As a caffeine addict who's already had at least three cups today, it's a choice I struggle to comprehend. But nevertheless, Gil, welcome. Thank you. It's really not that hard to understand, I don't think. <laughs> it's an intellectual, maybe spiritual failing of my own that I'm, I'm quite willing to own. Um, I want to I ask you um, to kind of get a running start about sort of what seems to be the peril of friendship in modern times. Um, there's, a, there's an essay from 2016 by the journalist Andrew Sullivan titled, I Used to Be a Human Being, which is a great title <laughs> for uh, an essay. And in it, uh, Sullivan laments um, our habit of substituting virtual reality for what he calls real fellowship. He says, we tend to diminish the scope of intimate interaction, even as we multiply the number of people with whom we interact. That's from Sullivan. So I want to ask you, is there something you think that's unique about contemporary culture that makes friendship especially hard to come by? Well, I don't know for sure uh, how to answer that. I mean, you, you have to keep in mind in part that people have all sorts of possibilities for, uh, for virtual contact that they didn't have uh, 
30 or 40 years ago, even much less, much less longer. It's hard for me to uh, judge because I engage in very little virtual contact. In fact, um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just not technologically inclined in that way. But there are certainly some obvious things about modern culture that cause problems for friendship, though, though these predate the era of, uh, of virtual contact. The simple fact that uh, we move frequently, uh, that people's uh, employment requires them to move uh, frequently, means that it, it creates a problem for friendship. And indeed, if you, if you know, as uh, many people uh, often do, not so much right now during the COVID period, but as people generally do, if, if you know that you're likely to need to move in three or four years, you probably want to limit the commitments you make in that short period of time. So I think just the way our life is organized undoubtedly makes it, uh, makes it difficult to, uh, to form friendships. And it may be that even um, uh, the, the possibilities for uh, virtual uh, reality help some people to make up for that, to sort of stay in touch in various ways. Students often argued that with me. I, I taught a course on friendship uh, but not every year, but maybe every other year. And near the end of the semester, we'd always read a few things on virtual friendships. And I just really, I, I, as I said, it's sort of out, of out of my experience. I just don't do it. But uh, I would listen to what the students had to say. And many of them were quite positive about it, though it often seemed to me that the things they were talking about weren't quite what I would call friendship. They were positive about the fact that they could stay in touch with sort of everybody they'd been, uh, been to high school with. And these can't all be your friends, uh, finally. They can be your acquaintances, but not your friends. Uh, so part of it may depend on what we mean by friendship. But um, uh, there may be some good things about it, but I, uh, I think that there are other aspects of our culture that just inevitably make lasting friendships uh, difficult. And I, it's, I suppose that with the quarantine and this global pandemic, some of these sort of residual issues have come into like deeper relief too. I noticed just from personal experience that when I was first sent home from work, that I started to reach out to, I guess you could call them peripheral friends or friends that maybe I hadn't really touched base with maybe in some years, friends from college, or you know, maybe cousins that I hadn't talked to in some time. Whereas the more proximate friendships that I had just started to develop like here, literally in Valparaiso, Indiana, all of a sudden were much harder to maintain. So it was just this weird inversion of the friendships that I prioritized in my life due to the virtual nature of our connection. Well, that makes sense because you had a, uh, a history, a background with these other people, even if it, with all of them, it wasn't really deep and intimate so that there was something to draw on there. And I, I can understand that. And it'd be harder to do it with someone whom, uh, whom you've known for only a very short period of time. Uh, I, I mean, I, for, for, there's a, there are several uh, other people who teach uh, Christian ethics at other institutions whom I know, uh, with whom I've always stayed in contact over the years. I, and I see them in meetings and stay in email contact, but uh, we exchange more emails now, I think. Uh, they're not always about sort of serious intellectual matters, um, but, uh, we probably have done that more during the uh, quarantine period than we did before. So that I, th I think that's understandable. Um, 
and some people reach out to do it, I guess, just because um, uh, they're lonely. But uh, but I don't know if the if the quarantine has fundamentally changed the way friendship works uh, or not. I don't think so. It's just made people feel a need to try, try to turn old acquaintances into uh, closer friends for a while. It seems also that even with these so these sort of rekindled friendships you can do over Zoom, people have been talking about Zoom fatigue or blue screen fatigue, which is there's a sort of initial you know interest in reconnecting with old friends, but when all of your human connections take place virtually, it starts to be start to sap your strength a little bit, and there's a certain like lack of satisfaction that maybe you would hope for enjoying you know a cup of coffee coffee or a beer with a friend you know just kind of in ordinary in ordinary times. Whereas if you have to like schedule an appointment and show up on a screen and you can't share food or drink, there's just something that's a little bit, I don't know, dehumanizing is probably too strong a word, but something less than satisfying about that experience when played over time. I suppose that's true. Although I was, I'm sure it is true. Uh, but I was just going to say, I mean, don't forget that 50 years ago, friends who uh, were not able to be in close contact with each other talked on the telephone. Um, that's a, another kind of contact that's not really in person. And they managed to make it work. And sometimes they talked frequently even. So, I mean, there's, cer- there's certainly something new and different about our situation. I'm never quite sure just how new and different uh, it is. But I could be, maybe I'm just insensitive and not, uh, I don't, uh, I'm not, not sensitive enough to the reality of what's going on. Well, I, I think it's, there has to be something that is distinctive, though, about uh, modern friendship. And uh, maybe there's a sort of baseline that, that, is, that is kind of timeless uh, across, across ages. But it seems, at least when you read, say, the ancients or the medievals or even some of the early moderns on what friendship is, it just sounds so different than, say, our ordinary experience today in the 21st century. So I was curious, uh, are, there, are there traditional ways... Uh, or vocabularies about talking about friendship that you think we've lost and might want to recover today. Can can you say a word about what what do you mean when you say it sounds so different? So when I so I also have taught uh, a few. We're going to turn this podcast around. See, so yeah, I'm going to interview you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Classic trick. I, I have not taught nearly as many seminars on friendship as you have, Gil, but I've taught a couple, and usually they, they're centering on ancient and medieval conceptions of love and friendship. So we'll read, you know, the, the, the usual suspects, Aristotle and Cicero and Aelred and Aquinas and Augustine. And I've had multiple students, independent of each other, come to me and say, what, what we're reading in these texts, these descriptions of what friendship entails, its nature and its ends, they don't use that language. That's me interpreting them. <laughs> it's completely foreign to me. They'll say, "I just I don't have friendships like that." Now, granted, they're they're probably nineteen or twenty years old, and maybe those sorts of friendships only kind of grow and form and are sustained over longer periods of time when you're more mature as a human being. But still, just even the way that these ancients and medievals talked about friendship and the, sort of the deep, intimate love, the idea of being, you know. Um, two persons with one soul. Like this is language that is, is striking in its foreignness to them. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, and I think part of what's going on there, this is, this is not the whole of it by any means, but I think it is in fact the case. I mean, I'm not a great enough historian really to develop the, 
the argument here, but but I, I think it's the case that in Christian culture, over a relatively long period of time, marriage displaced friendship at the center of life. So uh, whereas the ancients talked about friendship as one soul in bodies twain, um, Christians talked about marriage as uh, two souls in one body, one, uh, the one flesh uh, union, and marriage moved to the center of life. And uh, friendship, though still important in a whole variety of ways, uh, was not at the center in the way it had been, certainly in, uh, uh, in Greek culture, I think, for a while, and to some extent, uh, probably among Romans as well. So, uh, so the, the idea that, the, I mean, to take another one besides the one soul and body's twain, the idea that the friend is another self, uh, for instance, um, another one in whom I come to know and see myself, we may tend to apply more to marriage again. Than we, uh, than we do to friendship. Now, it may be as marriage declines in our culture, friendship will reassert its centrality. I don't know if that's true, but, but I think it just, it had a place in human interaction uh, in a world where uh, uh, public life was, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, a life that men shared uh, together. It, it had a place in their life that it seldom has in ours. It's a, it's a much more private relationship for us, I think. It's a, it's a step away from the things that are at the center of our lives. And in that sense, I think it is different. Probably the, the friendships that your students talk about experiencing uh, do sound somewhat different than what they read in Aristotle or Cicero. Though I think if, they, if they're willing to go to work on those texts, they'll find that they can learn something about their own friendships from them. But it's true that friendship just was much closer to the center of life uh, in the ancient world than it is in ours. Here's, it's, here, as I say, it's kind of a retreat from the center of life. At least that's, that's what makes sense to me about it. I don't know if, uh, if you'd agree or not. Well, I'm actually really curious about this, uh, especially in terms of what we could say is coming specifically from the Christian tradition. Because if you go back to certain New Testament texts, yes, you have something, I believe it's what Ephesians, uh, where the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, marriage being a sort of type of uh, Christ's love for the church. But you also have things like, uh, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. So I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that the Christian emphasis on marriage as the paradigmatic love, perhaps, is that necessarily so? Or what happened that we that marriage sort of displaced friendship as the primary paradigmatic love? Well, I start by answering that I start answering that question by saying that I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that it did. So uh, somebody sure. who thinks it's a bad thing might disagree. Um, uh, marriage has a kind of necessity and centrality in life that uh, that friendship does not. Um, that was that's true whether you're in a Christianized culture or not. Um, Christian thought just sort of made something of that and did something uh, with that. But um, uh, marriage has a kind of necessity, uh, whereas a culture can get along without putting friendship at the center in the way uh, uh, some ancient Greek uh, cultures did. So, uh, so to me, it's not. Uh, it's not surprising that it was at the center and having it at the center, Christians uh, uh, inevitably then uh, uh, sort of did some things with it. But I do think you're right. I mean, yes, you can talk about um, 
greater love hath no man, et cetera. You can talk about David and Jonathan, uh, but um, the marriage, the, the marriage imagery is very deep into the Bible. The whole relation between uh, uh, Israel and Israel's God um, is uh, often depicted uh, in that way, um, and the Christ Church uh, relationship. So I don't think it's accidental that marriage gradually moved to the uh, to the center of Christian culture. That didn't make um, uh, friendship unimportant or uh, unnecessary for a good life, but it did it did move it somewhat more to the periphery. And, and that seems to me to be um, something that we might have predicted would happen uh, with Christianity. So and this actually connects back to uh, a moment ago when you quoted uh, Aristotle's uh, maxim about um, the friend being another self. Uh, often marriage, the love in, that is... Uh, part of marriage is often framed in sort of sacrificial terms and so kind of falls in the line with a lot of Christian sacrificial language that gets associated with the, the Greek word agape. Whereas philia, the Greek word that often gets used for friendship in ancient Greek and pagan philosophy is something different. We don't have to get into, there's, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of pages have been spilled in just the past 80 years on that topic. We don't have to get into that now. But I, I, I have a question though specifically about this, this, I, this distinction between the love that's in friendship and the love that is in marriage. So if Aristotle says uh, the friend is another self, it can sound quite lovely, but it also, I think, and I'm curious if you share my, my intuitions here, it also raises some, some red flags. And so what I'm curious is, are, are there some ways that friendship could simply, at times, be a more socially acceptable form of narcissism, since we often accumulate friends uh, who look and think and act like us. That's often the, the basis for at least the beginning of a friendship, is that there's some commonality. So if, if friendships usually arise out of these like common interests or, or likenesses, how do we prevent our friendships from others from kind of just curving back in narcissistically on ourselves, as Augustine might say? Well that in, in some ways, that is the question that interested me when I first started thinking about friendship. That is to say, I was not really first interested so much just in the literature of friendship. I was interested in the theoretical problem, theoretical problem for Christian ethics about what moralists call special moral relations. Uh, that is to say, how we justify special preference for, uh, for certain people, which we all do show in one way or another. But if you have an ethic like Christian ethics uh, that has uh, some kind of principle requiring universal other regard, where you're supposed to love everybody, even your enemies, uh, the question is how you go about uh, making place within such an ethic for relationships that are clearly uh, preferential. And friendship uh, friendships are, I think, I mean, we're not wrong to worry about the issue that you're raising, but it would be sort of crazy to say that we should deliberately form friendships with people, try to form friendships with people who didn't share any of our interests. Um, uh, I, I think that'd be unlikely to be a, a, a useful starting point. Um, but it's, it is that theoretical issue that interested me more than just the kind of the nitty gritty of friendships at first. It was only after I went to work on it that I, 
read more widely in the literature of friendship and got interested in some of the other questions as well. In fact, when I taught my course on friendship, which I taught maybe, I don't know, every other year or something uh, during the years I taught, when I would come for the first meeting of the class and distribute the syllabus and talk my way through it, the first thing that I would say to the students is um, uh, people come to a course on friendship for all sorts of different reasons. I don't know what your reasons are. The only thing I can guarantee you is that this class will not be about them uh, because, uh, because, you know, I was going to have them reading uh, Kierkegaard's slashing attack on preferential love, uh, for instance, and so forth. And, and I was, uh, I was interested in that theoretical question. The course was, was structured around it, even though we ended up reading a lot of the classic literature on friendship and um, thinking through other ways in which friendship is, is important. But I think that to, to, to circle all the way back now to your question, your worry about uh, the narcissism and so forth, I mean, I, I'd say two things. One is to do Aristotle justice when he says the friend is another self. When the ancients said it, what they really meant primarily was not um, uh, just somebody like me, but somebody in whom I come to know myself and whom I come to see myself as I really am. Uh, that other person does not have to be exactly like me in all sorts of ways. He is unlikely to be that if he's not interested in anything I'm interested in. But um, uh, it doesn't mean that we're just sort of carbon copies of each other in any way. And I think that um, uh, friendship, deep friendship anyway, over time will always uh, end up having to deal with difference and explore difference as well. And uh, taken seriously, will gradually turn us into people who are a little more able to uh, welcome others into our circle uh, of friends. Um, we're, again, we're unlikely to welcome somebody who just isn't interested in talking about what we're talking about, but that's, that's excluding somebody uh, accidentally, so to speak, simply because they're not interested in whatever we're talking about. Um, the danger comes if we start to think that there's really something pretty special about us um, uh, and uh, we're uh, a special group and we begin to exclude other people uh, for the sheer joy of excluding them rather than accidentally because they don't happen to be interested in what it is we're interested in. I don't think there's anything terrible about that accidental sort of exclusion. Um, but I think friendship taken seriously will open us up, will, will, will transform us in some ways so that we're a little more uh, able to, uh, to welcome others in. So I wonder if that happens. You, you said the accidental preferential treatment is not in itself problematic, and I understand what you're saying. I wonder, though, if there are ways in which you know, what we do by accident um, can become problematic. So if I take stock, if I just start doing an, an inventory of, of who my friends are. And then I start to realize, well, <laughs> they tend to share the same status as me, whether regard to race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, a lot of them have PhDs, etc. <laughs> what does that say about me? And what does it say about what I am opening myself up to if that is that sort of block of people is pretty static, like if it looks very similar, if there aren't people who are you know, have deep differences with me along any of those lines. Is, is that problematic? I would say go to church. Uh, and, <laughs> um, uh, you get a, a lot of other people, a lot of other sorts of people in church. 
don't necessarily feel guilty about the fact that they're not all your uh, your deepest friends. Now that that's me. You don't have to uh, agree with that. I think that I mean to go all the way back to I think where you started about the the difficulties for friendship in our world. There is a sense in which over a long period of time, I do think Christianity creates some of those difficulties because, um, precisely because it raises questions about preference and it makes it uh, makes it difficult uh, to uh, uh, you, you you feel guilty about uh, these preferences. I, I don't feel guilty about them, um, even though I recognize it as a fact of life. I think that. I think that a, a, a well-worked-out Christian understanding uh, of friendship will find a way to make place for preference within a love that is still more uh, universally open. Um, uh, I think there are different ways, there are several different ways Christians have tried to do this. Um, I won't bother you with my typology of the, uh, of the ways, but... Um, you don't have to do it. You can decide to just, uh, you know, be a Franciscan and live for everybody. Um, that's a that's a legitimate choice. Uh, doesn't pay very well. Well, it doesn't do that, and um, uh, it may not provide some other goods that um, life provides. Though it will, it will, uh, it will produce certain uh, good things that uh, I won't be producing in my life. So, so it, that's it's legitimate for a Christian to say. Uh, I'll just um, try to live, will to live equally for everyone, um, uh, to take a kind of Kierkegaardian uh, formula. But you should remember how notoriously unhappy Kierkegaard's personal life was. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't press that too far. And, and I do think that to just sort of be self-flagellating about uh, the dangers here is probably a mistake. Uh, to be aware of them, uh, to uh, try to think about ways in which uh, friendship can be both fulfilling and uh, uh, open to others, that, that's useful. But I wouldn't go beyond that. And actually, my, my first sort of joking response was a serious one. Uh, when I said go to church, uh, you know, church is not just me and my friends. Um, you end up sitting next to a lot of people with whom you would not ordinarily spend a lot of time. That's not a bad thing. Um, and, uh, and the church is not just a, a community of friends. So, uh, so I think there are ways in which Christian uh, thought and uh, practice can, can lean against what you're worried about. But I would encourage you not to spend your whole time feeling guilty uh, about these, uh, these special friends that you have. I appreciate the absolution. That's not a very Protestant thing to do, but I'll, well, I'll you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be a little pastoral for you here. <laughs> I could use it. So I want to follow up though. Uh, so you say go to church and I, I take that uh, quip to actually be quite substantive in terms of thinking about the places in which you do encounter others who are different from you. And of course we could expand that beyond church to say local community organizations or, you know, volunteering at your children's athletic club or whatever it is that brings you into contact with a broader, perhaps local community. However, you said though, when you were talking about going to church that when you go to church, it's not just you and your friends. So it seems like you're making a distinction between those who you count as say capital F friends and those that you are in community with, 
whether ecclesially or say democratically within your local community. And I, I'm wondering then, like, are, are these, it seems like we're talking now about different layers of friendship, one that maybe is true friendship with one about whom we could say they are another self. And then lots of other people, maybe in a subset, who aren't quite friends. They're like um, minor league friends, you know, who that we come into perhaps regular contact with, but we don't really enjoy the same connection. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I don't tend to, I don't tend to call them friends. I tend to call them acquaintances. But um, I won't quibble over the terms, but sure, it's, it's obvious that uh, if, if by friend we mean the kind of deep relation, I mean, we don't even have to go back to Aristotle and Cicero, but just the deep relation that uh, many people today want in a friend, it's obvious that there's a limit to how many such friends you can have. Have to have eaten the required pinch of salt together, Aristotle says. Um, uh, so uh, we're going to need some way of characterizing these other people. I mean, sometimes we talk about business friends, sports friends, you know, various things like that people will, will describe. But, but we're going to need some different language anyway to make the distinction. Uh, one thing you have written about somewhat critically in the past was the idea of, of political friendship, which I take to be another species of this, whether we want to call it an acquaintance relationship or a friend relationship, where there's some sort of commonality or union based around, say, a national or local identity. And I, I was wondering if you could could just say maybe a word about what political friendship was, say, for like the ancients, and why you think it's it's a limited idea of what friendship could be. Well, it uh, precisely because uh, at least at least for the Greeks, I, I mean, I think we're really talking about the Greeks here uh, primarily. Um, uh, precisely because friendship was at the center of life, uh, they thought of the uh, uh, civic community as a an extended bond of uh, friends. Now, now, it was still a in some ways a rather small uh, group of. Uh, friends that made up that civic friendship. It was primarily the males, after all. Uh, there were a whole lot of slaves who didn't qualify. Uh, so, uh, so it was still a, a small group. But uh, they did think of uh, friendship as the bond that ties the civic community uh, together. Um, I've never found that very persuasive myself. You're right. I've, uh, I've been critical of it. Um, for one thing, it it's, it's only even, if it works at all, it's only plausible in a very small community. I mean, don't forget how small the polis was uh, in, in Greece. Um, it was the, the notion that we could have civic friendship in the United States of America is, I think is just, to, to say that is just to say you don't really understand what friendship means. Um, so it requires something very small. It wasn't just the Greeks that do that. It's right at the center of Rousseau's thinking uh, also, he 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 wants a, a kind of deep unity, and he realized he's got, got a, as I recall, he's even got a mathematical formula, doesn't he, for uh, how how large the community can be. So right. it's it's a very limited. If if it's possible, it's possible in very limited um, uh, uh, communities. And I think it's also um, how to put this in a way that is reasonable. It, it devours too much of life. Uh, it, uh, the, the, the communitarian impulse um, uh, stifles human freedom in lots of ways. Michael Walzer wrote a, a 
wonderful paired set of essays years ago on the obligation to die for the state and the obligation to live for the state. And um, uh, I can make my peace with the obligation to die for the state, but um, uh, there are some problems with the obligation to live for the state, to put it at the center of your life, as Walzer's essay realizes really, uh, really nicely. Um, uh, even though Walzer is a democratic socialist, he, he has the wonderful quote from uh, Oscar Wilde about the trouble with socialism is that it would take too many evenings. You're constantly going to these participatory meetings uh, in which you're all uh, engaging in political activity together. It, it just eats up the rest of life. So I, I think that uh, it's, it's just not, it's not a notion that's really helpful for larger political communities anyway. And I think it's, it's a dangerous one in certain ways if you care about uh, uh, freedom. Uh, friendship should be, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, is right, I think that friendship is a retreat from public life. It shouldn't, it shouldn't take over our way of thinking about public life. I think Lewis also at one point uh, describes friendship, though, as, as a site for potential resistance, uh, as a sort of like shutting off and, and forming a sort of, you know, a sort of small set collective power group, right? That it's something that, you know, I, I think this is in, in one of Cicero's letters. He talks about his, his sort of fear of friendship uh, in political terms because of the way it can kind of marshal power against the social order. Yes. Uh, I mean, and groups of friends were, uh, were dangerous in, in the ancient world. I mean, that, uh, you, you marshaled uh, your friends uh, for not just for sort of a little uh, attempt to gain, you know, make a political point. You marshaled them for life and death reasons so that uh, they really were uh, uh, dangerous. And of course, Cicero lost his uh, own life uh, partly because of that. So, so the, the more seriously you take uh, such groups of friends, the more dangerous they can be in certain instances. What exactly Lewis meant by the resistance uh, metaphor, uh, I don't know. I, 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 tend, I, t- I tend to read Lewis as more thinking of friendship as a kind of retreat from larger public life. But um, uh, I guess he thinks that the, uh, the group that does that is potentially uh, uh, capable of resistance precisely because their, their common mind is not formed simply by the larger public mind. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't want to lump Lewis in with uh, a theorist of political resistance. I don't think he fits very neatly there. No. I think, so I, I, this is a theme that is of great interest to me, friendship as it relates to, to social resistance, because you've seen this, of course, in the first generation of the civil rights movement. There's a, a lot of talk about things like the beloved community or um, discussions of, of conceiving of citizenship as a kind of collective friendship. Uh, Daniel Allen in her book, Talking uh, to Strangers, is, is quite um, interesting on this point in the way that sort of friendship models kind of played out in activating political resistance. And you see that even today in, say, a second instantiation of, of a civil rights movement where sort of decentralized fringe groups are marshalling, you know, political movements. And to some that could look dangerous, to others that could be like a, a very positive sign of, you know, democratic political action. Do you think that there is a way for us to look at these sort of networks of political friendships and say that maybe there are ways to determine whether they are doing so for virtuous ends or for vicious ones, or should we always be skeptical of friendship when it is marshaled for political causes like this? 
Well, I'd say a couple things. Uh, one, I mean, obviously, if, if we can determine what their ends are, we may be able to make judgments about whether we think those ends are relatively better or worse. That's always possible. But I myself, I mean, this is just part and parcel of my tendency to think that the civic friendship language doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not sure I believe these are groups of friends. Uh, they're more like comrades. Comrades have uh, a goal in mind, a shared goal that they're uh, working toward. Uh, friends don't necessarily have any goal other than spending time with each other. Uh, so, uh, so I think that, uh, and, and when, when the political cause uh, ebbs away uh, or changes, I think we'll find that what we call this group of uh, uh, friends dissipate, dissipates in many ways. There, will, there may still be some come out of the movement and remain friends for other reasons. But I, there's a difference between uh, comradeship and friendship. Uh, Glenn, Jacob, Glenn Gray in his wonderful book uh, on warfare, The Warriors, makes, uh, has, a, has a nice discussion of the way um, men in battle are comrades uh, and uh, care deeply about each other, very deeply, will risk their lives uh, for each other. But their relationship is different from the relation of friends. Um, they're, they're oriented on a goal. Uh, friends don't really have that uh, sort of goal, I don't think. And I, I, think we, I think we're likely to lose what friendship really has to offer, the great good it has to offer in human life, if we start turning it into a political uh, program. And to be honest, I mean, I know, the, I know the good origins of the beloved community language and so forth. Um, I don't actually believe it. It, it. You can pour a lot of content into it, to be honest. I think, I think we should kind of keep our political language and our uh, friendship language uh, fairly distinct. Perhaps this is where my uh, Calvinist background and your Lutheran one are revealed. <laughs> Our two colors come out. Well, uh, some, but some of your teachers in graduate school too. Uh. That's fair. <laughs> uh, one, I mean, this is related. Uh, I, this is an experience I had just last week in in my classroom, uh, where I've been teaching a, a course on the theme of empathy, and often it's actually been a course I think really about the limits of empathy. And last week, uh, I think it was on Monday, uh, I asked my students for, we were talking about what it means to disagree with one another, how to have an actual argument that is productive, that goes somewhere. And I asked them to, to take some time to form small groups and to come up with examples of a good disagreement. And it was crickets. I, they, they admitted they, they had nothing. They didn't have exemplars of uh, a good disagreement between people on especially a matter of deep difference. And then it just happened to be, I think maybe providentially, I, I came across a panel discussion that was released online. And it was a discussion moderated by uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams between Robert George and Cornell West. So George is a, a noted conservative thinker from uh, Princeton and Cornell West is a you know, very brilliant progressive thinker and activist uh, formerly of Princeton. And they met about 15 years ago when they were on the same campus and formed uh, what they both say is, is one of their deepest friendships, despite deep ideological and political differences. So uh, Cornell West, like Walter, is a democratic socialist. George is anything but. So I, I played about, I think it was about 20 minutes of this conversation for my students, and they were very puzzled. They, they said really they, several of them spoke up and said that they had no 
experience with a sort of friendship across the political spectrum. I want to ask you, I mean, is, is, is the Robert George Cornell West friendship the exception that proves the rule these days? Do you think it's possible in today's context for us to really have real intimate friendships um, where deep political or ideological difference resides? Well, it's obviously possible uh, because we have examples of it. Uh, notice uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died, and she and Justice Scalia were very close friends, um, uh, excellent friends, though differing in all sorts of ways. That's a sort of a example that's right before us uh, right now. There are going to be other things involved here. After all, in, take the, in the Cornell West, Robbie George uh, example, we do have to keep in mind that they actually have a lot of things in common, despite their very different backgrounds. They've read a lot of the same things. They're interested in the same kinds of questions. They both enjoy argument. Um, uh, they both have some other kinds of interests, uh, share some interest in certain music uh, and so forth. So they actually have a lot in common as well. And, and if they didn't have anything at all uh, in common, their political differences might be uh, might mark their uh, their entire relationship uh, more than uh, they do now. But, I mean, obviously, deep differences about matters that you think are important are going to raise difficulties uh, for friendship. Um, your students don't experience too much of that kind of friendship because, to be honest, they live in a world where there are a lot of little would-be tyrants uh, running around. Um, uh, who aren't actually interested in argument. Robbie George and Cornell West are interested in argument. Uh, Justices Scalia and Ginsburg were interested in argument. Uh, if you're not really interested in that, if you, you only want to win, then um, probably there isn't much possibility for, uh, for this kind of friendship. But uh, I don't know why we should only want to win. I mean, it's always nice to win, I guess. Uh, it's better than losing. But, uh, but if, you're really, if you're really interested in ideas and argument, you will realize that almost all of the sorts of questions that people have in mind when they think about hard political questions are complicated ones. They're, they're not obvious. If they were obvious, we wouldn't have these deep disagreements. So, so the, a certain capacity for uh, recognizing uh, complexity and accepting it is going to be necessary. And, and to the degree that, that your students haven't seen or don't have that capacity for recognizing complexity, I guess it's your job to try to help them, uh, help them develop it. And if you do that really well, then they'll experience some of these uh, sorts, of, uh, sorts of friendships. So it's, well, it's your task, really. That's the great hope of every, of every teacher, right? Sure. Lifting up exemplars of, of things that perhaps, you know, students wouldn't have even thought were possible before. And in some cases, like it seems like the relationship between George and West, as it seems to be, is almost a, a, a miracle in today's context. Um, or Biscalia and Ginsburg. Um, you've seen like the some of the the notes and the public testimonies that, for instance, Scalia's children have put out um, about Ginsburg and after her death. And it's remarkable to see that. And it seems, you know, so out of the ordinary from the sort of political discourse we usually run into. Well, you're right. We might not notice it so much if it were more common. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been a, a delightful conversation. And uh, of course, Gil, I want to say I'm looking forward to a time when we can share a Coke and a coffee together in person, <laughs> not virtually, and, and enjoy uh, the fruits of, of real in-person friendship. But thank you so much for spending time with us today. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to Call in Character, a podcast from the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. If you have any feedback or questions, follow us on the Institute's Facebook page or send an email to lead.serve at valpo.edu. Our production team includes Aaron Morrison and Kim Neiman. Please subscribe to Call in Character on iTunes, Spotify, and other places podcasts are found. And leave us a comment and a rating. Until next time, 